Good evening. I'm Kevin Kelly of the Long Now Foundation. I'm your substitute host for this evening. Usually Stuart Brand hosts this, but he is in scrambling along the Nile in Egypt, um, exploring a Long Now adventure on the world's longest river. So, yes, our topic tonight is artificial intelligence. And I don't think that um, I have been at a dinner in the last four years where the conversation at some point during the dinner did not touch upon AI, nor have I given a talk in the last five years where the question of AI has not come up. That suggests to me that the importance of artificial intelligence is appreciated all over the world. We all understand that this is perhaps one of the most important things that we're doing. At the same time, the uncertainty about where it's going to go and what it's going to lead to is just as high. And it's this pairing of absolute certainty of the importance of this and the absolute uncertainty of what it will do and what it will mean that has brought us to this moment where we want to talk about the possible ways of AI. And to do that, we have a different format this evening than we usually do. I'm going to introduce John Brockman, who is a curator and an editor who likes to take some of his literary clients, of which I am one and Stuart is another, and all the people on stage tonight uh, use John to represent, him, represent them. But he is someone who likes to take thinking intellectuals, scientists who can talk to the public and have them talk to each other. And through that conversation, explore reality. And so he's going to have a conversation with three natural intelligences who are experts in cognition. And um, for about 12 minutes each, they'll talk. And then um, I'm going to come back up and I'll ask some questions, and then I'll represent the questions that you have written on the cards very legibly. <laughs> and um, we'll have a conversation in a larger sense. So um, let's think about the ways in which this certain world of AI could be explored. In John's book, which he's just edited, it's called um, Possible Minds. 25 ways to think about AI. The people who are here this evening, the three of them, uh, each have a, a different vision of AI, and we're going to hear about those, and together we'll try to think about the ways in which this inevitable future is coming and how it could play out. So John, would you like to take over? I'm Stuart Brand the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world.
Thank you. Uh, uh, as Kevin said, I'm the editor of the volume. I did not write it. Uh, but here we are in this theater, and I guess I have to talk about it, which is fitting because my aspiration has always been to be the guy at the back of the theater that turns the lights on and turns them off. <laughs> and that's a good place to start because in 1965, I was approached by the late Jonas Mekas, who only died two weeks ago at the age of 96. And he said, uh, we'd like to hire you to come in in my absence, as I have to go home to Latvia, and run a festival uh, based on cinema, because this is Filmmaker Cinematheque, which was the home of avant-garde theater and, uh, and cinema. Uh, uh, we want you to take this list of 50 artists, which included Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, uh, Nam June Paik, Happenings artist Alan Capro, Carolee Schneeman, um, minimal uh, musicians like Lamont Young and Terry Riley. And each of them can do an event. Here's $50, you hand out to them, and um, make sure it's somehow connected to cinema. And I took the job, we ran the festival, it was an astonishing success. To the extent, the, the, the big result ultimately had uh, its, its big effect was in disco. Uh, <laughs> that twirling, diffraction grating ball that you dance under, uh, every time you see it, just think of me. Because uh, <laughs> Village Voice said uh, the events that we were running then was the beginning of the age of disco, so that's, uh, I want to go down with that one. Uh, <laughs> so what does this have to do with cybernetics? Uh, what happened, uh, for example, the USCO group showed up, there was a, a guy named uh, Gerd Stern, uh, who was an, an anonymous group of guild artists, uh, musicians, writers, poets, uh, they lived in a psychedelic, psychedelic tabernacle, and it was there in 1965 I met a young satellite guy to that group. His name was Stuart Brand. And that was 54 years ago when we've been in touch regularly ever since, you know, in, even three weeks ago in New York when he got clobbered in a debate. Uh, some of you might have seen. Uh, and uh, Stuart is, has always been cooking. And Stuart and I uh, had a mutual interest in something that was going on at the Cinematheque in 1965 uh, that I had no idea about is all the scientists, all the artists were reading science. And I was the bright young 24-year-old. And Robert Rauschenberg said, take this, and it was one, two, three, infinity by Robert Gam by George Gamow, and Klaus, Ol Klaus Oldenburg, the sculptor, gave me one, two, three, infinity by J James Jeans, and all of them were reading Norbert Wiener. Maybe not, maybe not Warhol, but uh, uh, Wiener's ideas were everywhere. The idea of the nonlinear relationship be between input and output, and at the same time. Luckily, uh, you have these things happen in your life that 
change everything. Uh, I met John Cage, the composer philosopher, who was organizing a monthly dinner of young artists. And five or six of us would meet at the home of the founder of the Fluxus art movement, Dick Higgins. And we'd sit there, Cage would make his beer recipes, beer and mushroom recipes, <laughs> uh, and feed us, and then feed us the ideas he was thinking about. He was working on a book then called A Year From Monday. And what he was interested in was primarily Wiener. And he also talking a lot about Claude Shannon and uh, von Neumann, and uh, particularly Marshall McLuhan. And, and those were breathtaking evenings that affected everybody there. And certainly, uh, I got intensely excited. And this went on for about eight months. And at one point, Cage reached into his knapsack and pulled out a book and handed it to me. He said, this is for you. And it, Cybernetics by Norbert Wiener. OK, I took the book. He never talked to me again. Uh, after three or four meetings, I, I asked Dick Higgins, the host, what so? And he said, John, he's a Zen master. You don't need him. So that was that. Uh, I went on my way. And um, while I was at the Cinematheque, um, something else very interesting called. The phone rang. It was someone named A.K. Solomon, head of biophysics at Harvard. And also on the phone was Walter Rosenblith, sensory communications researcher at MIT. And Solomon explained that the two of them were Wiener's best friends. Wiener had died uh, some months before. And they were puzzled. They've been reading all these many articles in the New York Times about the activities at the Cinematheques, which were, which were getting worldwide publicity. And um, why is Wiener involved in this? What, is, what, is, what do we have to do with this? And they didn't know. I didn't know anything about science. Uh, and they said, let's have a meeting. And why don't you bring your artists to Cambridge, and we'll get together, and we'll have a discussion. And we did. And it was the USCO group, Terry Riley, who is, became the inspiration for Brian Eno, um, Ken Dewey, uh, Theater X. About eight of us went up, and we spent two days talking with uh, Solomon, who at that time was Jared Diamond's thesis advisor, which I only found out recently. Uh, Anthony Ettinger, uh, Walter Rosenblith, and Harold Doc Edgerton, who invented the stroboscope. None of them were computer scientists because there were no computers. Uh, but the big event was they took us to see the computer. Um, we walk into this huge space in which, isolated in the middle, is a cold room, which is raised up about a foot. And it has wood, and then it has glass. And inside the room are all these people scurrying around wearing white coats and um, gloves, because it was really cold. And I remember walking up to the window, my nose against the window, and my breath uh, steaming things up, watching this enormous machine spitting out cards and people running back and forth. And I fell in love. 
And that's why I'm here. And this is not my book. We have some very bright people here to talk about it. And the point of this book is, uh, was, was, was my, we started out having a meeting uh, in um, Washington, Connecticut, uh, because I had picked up Weiner's other book, The Human Use to Human Beings, which strangely, um, I was on my way out on a nice summer day, and I said, I'll grab a book, and I'd never read it before. I realized it'd been in my library for all these years, where, where Cybernetics by Norbert Wiener, uh, two years after I first read it at the Cinematheque, I came to Menlo Park and to see my friend Stuart, and the two of us sat in a corner in November 67, while Lois Brand, his wife, the mathematician, was the person doing the whole catalog. Stuart and I sat in a corner reading, underlining, annotating, discussing cybernetics by Norbert Wiener. And that experience has been with me for 54 years, and that's what I've been doing. And here I am. So um, that's it for my introduction. And um, uh, we're going to hear from Rod Brooks, uh, Alan Gopnik, and Stuart Russell in alphabetical order. And uh, am I supposed to do introductions? Uh, Rod, <laughs> what can you say about Rod? Uh, if you want to be a credentialed person in a world where credentials don't matter as much anymore and, and be attacked for being elitist, he was the chairman of computer science at MIT, then he was the chairman of computers of the AI lab at MIT. I don't see how you get better than that, but today, as Neil Gershenfeld points out in the book, um, any freshman in Neil's courses has in his pocket his startup plan that he's willing to show his professor and leave the university for the startup. Uh, and that's, to some degree, who we have running a lot of these companies um, that are uh, in the mainstream today and doing very well, so who knows. Uh, Rod recently uh, uh, was running a robotics company prior to that. He's the man behind the Roomba vacuum cleaner. And um, uh, <laughs> Rod Brooks. <laughs> Thanks, John. You know, I, I started out <clears throat> by doing a degree in pure mathematics, and I ended up being a vacuum cleaner salesman. So things are, <laughs> things are going really well. So you've been talking about the, the, the lack of uh, responsibility that the platforms are taking vis-a-vis -vis issues such as privacy or even the future of computation. Do you like to...? Yes, I, th I think, um, you know, harking back to Norbert Wiener's uh, a book on the... On the uh, uh, the, you, the second book that you mentioned. Wiener had been looking at cybernetics at, at a time when machines were physical stuff you could see. And he introduced control theory. It had come out of his work during the Second World War on controlling uh, aiming systems for guns. But you could see the components. You could see how they were connected. 
And he was at a time trying to apply that sort of thinking to, the, to how animals worked, how animals and humans worked, the physical understanding. And at the same time, Turing and von Neumann were introducing the idea of computation. And computation was very different. You can't really see the components. You don't have a good intuition uh, you know, from your childhood of how, how the pieces fit together. There were very different methodologies for thinking about animals and humans and intelligence. And by the way, Stuart, I think in another 50 years we'll have an equally different way of thinking about things. So things are going to change. But this new way of thinking, computational thinking, you can't see the components and you can't see how they fit together, but at the same time we had Moore's Law where computation was just getting more and more, doubling every year or two, and we had to exploit it. And so the engineering that used to be based on physical components was now based on these information components that you couldn't really see or understand, and that pressure of Moore's Law said anyone who can, can exploit Moore's Law is going to make a lot of money, do a lot of things, and so we sort of gave up on the normal engineering principles. And we have built, as a result, um, systems which are not very secure. And we've given over our, our, our control of our world to those insecure systems, which, well, I, I, it's all about universality and von Neumann architectures. I won't go into that. But it, the second thing that's happened is that we went from a world where mm. there was an interaction to recording the interactions. And so now, it's not just what the interaction is at one point, but it's the record of interactions, and that is how we've given up, gave up our security, now we've given up our privacy. And that is being exploited in ways that none of us would let a person know about everything we did. We wouldn't let them look over our shoulder at everything we did, <clears throat> unless we trusted them uh, with everything of our lives, but when we're talking to our machines, we don't sort of see that in the background all these pieces of information are being correlated and we have lost our privacy, but, and that's how we're being exploited. In your chapter, you were a little more jaundiced. You, were, oh, well. we, you weren't naming names, but you were explicitly talking about the communication platforms have become a shield behind which some companies hide in order to inhumanly exploit others. And I think uh, Roger McNamee may have uh, talked about that fairly right. recently. And you also said, humankind has gotten itself into a fine pickle. <laughs> we are being exploited by companies that paradoxically deliver services we crave, and at the same time, our lives depend on many software-enabled systems open to attack. Getting ourselves out of this mess will be a long-term project. It will involve engineering, legislation, and most important, moral leadership. Moral leadership is the first and biggest challenge. But legislation in the West Coast? Well, we, we, we have lived for hundreds of years with legislation about engineered systems. We had, you know, in the, in the great days of the train systems being introduced in the UK, there was legislation about so, so, safety. So we have had that. I think, you know, many people, someone said to me tonight, oh, you and Stuart are going to disagree uh, uh, vociferously. Who's this Stuart? Well, this Stuart's going to be a, a couple of people after me, Stuart Russell. Uh -huh. um, but I think, I think, um, I think um, um, uh, although Stuart thinks it's about superintelligence, I think it's about pretty straightforward dumb stuff is what is getting us. Mm -hmm. And it's the exploitation. Of that. By the way, um, uh, Wiener 
thought of, was, was worried in his book. He was worried about how these mechanical systems were going to make us humans just cogs in the system. He viewed that level of control. But the, the level of control is much more subtle and, and less explicit. It's sort of an accidental byproduct. Mm -hmm. But he was, he was analog. He, was, he didn't, Very analog. He didn't yes. know about computers, but the prescience of what he was talking about in the human use of human beings um, talked about uh, we must not kiss the hand that holds the, holds the whip. You know, it, uh, in his book he had a a chapter which George Dyson pointed out to me uh, in his 1950 uh, first edition, which was expunged four years later because he went after scientists that were exploiting technology. He uh, was for, and, and his two best friends were Shannon, who had gone to work at RCA, and Von Neumann, who had gone to work at IBM. So that's and you went to work at Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now you're, now you're not associated, you're not the uh, Roomba professor at... Uh, no, 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 yeah. I, 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 I moved on from vacuum cleaners to, um, with my next company, um, someone studying the human, uh, the biome was using uh, my robot Baxter to unpack stool samples, so I continued <laughs> the, the climb. All right, so we're talking about uh, some of your responses to the climate today, but in terms of your own scientific work, you, this book is called Possible Minds 25, Ways of looking at AI. Why is your way different? Well, I, I really, in, in, in this particular book, I really concentrated on, on uh, in my essay on Wiener's uh, worries and how they had turned out to be expressed in a different way. But in terms of possible minds, I'm much more interested today in how we have, uh, across lots of areas of science, uh, taken computation as our metaphor for what's going on. And it's the, it, that's just what everyone does now, neuroscience, computational neuroscience. Computation is the metaphor. By the way, the computation metaphor of um, <clears throat> Turing, as expressed by von Neumann, and then Eho, Hopcroft, Ullman, uh, Knuth, etc. that computational metaphor, the fundamental metaphor of, a, of computation, no longer holds for our computers, it turns out. Uh, that is why we had the uh, recent uh, two attacks, uh, uh, Spectra and another one, uh, on all our uh, 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 Intel-based processes because they, don't, they no longer maintain that, uh, uh, that abstraction of computation. But we think computation is the tool that we will work with. When I was very young, the tool for thinking about um, or the metaphor for thinking about the brain uh, in the books that I read as a child were a um, telephone switching network. And then they became a computer, and then they became a massively parallel computer. In earlier times, we had had a, a, a hydrodynamic system in our head. At all times, we take the, the most uh, technically advanced thing out there and use that as the metaphor for thinking. And I think we probably haven't quite got it right yet. Mm -hmm. Um, the names of the world are the life of the world. Nature is not created, it's said. And so, with brain is a computer, yes. Um, when your brain isn't a computer, you know, it's a neural network or if it, 
people take, doctor takes blood, that's who you are. Um, very interesting to see where we'll go. By, by, the, by the way, even back in the cybernetics days, people mm -hmm. were, and, and if you read the, uh, uh, as you referred to it, I think in the introduction, if you read the Macy conferences, which were the cyberneticians working together, they were very taken with McCulloch and Pitts from 1943, describing how the uh, neurons were logical elements, which is what has led to neural networks. But if you go back and read that 1943 paper, it was pure supposition by, this, uh, by, by Pitts uh, uh, in, in Chicago. Uh, where was that? Well, yeah, the first paper in the Macy conferences wasn't on cybernetics. It was in 42, it was on neural inhibition. Yeah, it was and, and, and McCulloch and Pitts in 43 tried to connect that with logic. It's interesting that McCulloch and Pitts uh, were electrical engineers. Um, they were the ones that were insistent over Wiener's objections that mind have a place in cybernetics. Um, and they recruited Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead to, based on their work, uh, uh, in Bateson's book, Navin, in the, in, and they were present at every conference, but at a certain point, the engineers and the systems and ecologically-minded people went one way, and the others went the other way, and once digital came in around 1961 or two, the digital engineers knew what they were doing, and the cybernetic stuff was a dead end. It just wasn't relevant. But the ideas were. The ideas survived. They are the world we live in. We don't have to use the word cybernetic anymore. But you have an entire generation of generations of people for 40 years that were clueless about the intellectual landscape that all this comes from. And, and that's what I hope to accomplish with this book. Uh, so, so for me, you sort of asked what I was uh, you know, thinking about for AI. The, for me, it's how did those ideas, the ideas of Ashby, et cetera, designed for a brain, uh, coming out of cybernetic uh, tradition, what aspects did they capture that the computational models don't capture? And is there something there that can lead to a, set of, a new set of ideas? Because I think that current... Um, What's currently called AI, machine learning, deep learning, is a very narrow slice, really based on that, way, all the way back to that McCulloch and Pitts paper from 43, and is probably missing an enormous amount of what will be necessary if we're going to build real AI systems. But meanwhile, I'm worried about the security and privacy getting us long before that. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Allison, uh, when I interview people on the EDGE website, if any of you have watched these interviews, you don't hear me. Like, uh, I do talk occasionally, but basically I try to say nothing. Uh, I always ask the people, there's one question, what is the question you're asking yourself? <laughs> um, today, the reason is uh, we don't talk about books on the site, even though I make my living in the book business. Uh, it becomes a busman's holiday. This is a way I get to talk to people and not have to look at them as money. <laughs> so uh, 
so uh, analogously to that, I'm not going to ask you what are the questions you're asking yourself, uh, which are very different than an author in a book tour who's talking about what they were thinking about four years ago <laughs> when they proposed a book. Um, like to stay in the present. And so in, the, in this regard, talk about what's different about the way you're looking at this whole field. So actually, what Rodney was saying at the end of his conversation, it was a great setup for the sort of things that, that we're working on. So there's been this enormous excitement, justified excitement, about what's happened in the past five or six years in machine learning and AI. But I think there's an increasing sense that people are coming up against the limits of what some of these techniques can actually do. That in fact, there's remarkably powerful but very narrow compared to the kinds of things that any human being, and the human beings that I study are three and four-year-olds, that any three and four-year-old, uh, that any three and four-year-old can do. And what I think more and more people are trying to think about is could we get both clues from uh, looking at, say, very young children for designing AI that could overcome those limitations, and also are there ways that we could understand human beings, including very young children, and in particular, how could we understand this amazing thing about human beings, which is that we have these little disturbances of air at our eardrums and photons hitting the back of our retinas, and yet somehow we go from that to learn all the things that we know about the world, including learning about computers and quarks and distant objects. And the people who do that, most of that learning, most effectively, are the people who are sitting there under our feet being ignored um, up, mm -hmm. to, up to about age four. So mm -hmm. there's a really interesting question on both sides. How do we as human beings learn as much as we do? And how could we actually design artificial systems that could learn that involves putting together those two th these two things that you wouldn't normally think would go together. And then, of course, there's the worry about whether the machines are going to blow up and kill us all. But that's kind of, you know, I'll leave that for Stuart and Rod to, to worry about, at least for now. So you, you... And by the way, the analogy to toddlers might be relevant here. Like, right, you really, like, you probably don't want to... I think three-year-olds are unbelievably smart, but you probably don't want to give them the keys to the nuclear, uh, to your, your nuclear weapons, which is sort of analogous to the AI issues. So, Allison is known for theory of mind, and she's one of the top cognitive scientists in the world. And it's always been interesting to me why all these ones and zeros people are running the show, mm -hmm. um, literally without any sense of psychology, without any sense of the definition of intelligence. In this book, there are people like uh, Steven Pinker or uh, Rod Brooks or, that are talking about coming at it from the intelligence angle um, and yourself. Uh, but so much of it is about engineering. Mm -hmm. And I just don't get it. Like, what, Well, what? you know, it's John, uh, my experience in the past in the past several years, when I've been I've been talking to to computer scientists for 20 years, but particularly with this new excitement, is that in some ways engineers are more open-minded than scientists are. Scientists tend to scientists tend to really develop a theory about what the world is like or what the mind is like and really want to hold on to it really ferociously. And to some extent, there's something good about the engineering attitude that says. 
oh, you think the mind is different from the way that I've been thinking about the mind, and you think that mm. could help us to learn better? Fabulous, great. I'm going to do something different from what I've been doing before. Mm. And you can see this even if you look at the development of the new deep learning techniques, for example. Lots of people who are not using those techniques, who are using trying to use more abstract kinds of representation said, oh, wait a minute, these things are really exciting and they work really well and they're really powerful. But now, as I say, we're coming up against the limitations. And I think the limitations are things like uh, being able to creatively think up new ideas. So what these techniques are incredibly good at doing is pulling out complicated statistical structure from very big data sets. And I don't think anybody realized that having really big data sets and having really powerful computers and just essentially doing this really relatively simple thing, as, as Rod was saying, something that goes back to McCullough and Pitts of being able to pull out statistical structure could let us do all these things that we couldn't do, we couldn't do before. But that's still a very, very different process, even though we call it learning, from the kind of learning that, say, kids are doing every day, where you can give kids three examples, not five million examples. And then what they'll conclude from that is something, a, a, a nice example, you mentioned theory of mind, right? So um, you can give kids very little data and they'll be able to figure out something like, here's what this person believes, here's what this person thinks, here's what this person wants. And I can make a brand new inference about what the person wants and what the person believes and what they'll do, completely unlike anything that anybody has ever said before. Um, just with a tiny, tiny bit of data. And that's exactly the opposite of the sort of strengths and weaknesses of the current exciting AI, where you've got enormous amounts of data and not very good generalization to, to new examples. Mm -hmm. With kids, you've got tiny bits of data and amazing generalizations. So one of the things, one of the stories I talk about, one of the great things about being a developmental cognitive scientist is that you can get to tell cute stories about your grandchildren and nobody can stop you because you're a cognitive scientist. Uh, Time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... I, I learned that from Matt Whitaker in the five-minute clock <laughs> yeah, congressional right. hearings. Um, so my... Grandson was talking, four-year-old grandson was talking to his grandfather who said, I want to be a kid again. And Augie very quietly said, well, maybe you should stop eating broccoli and green beans and healthy vegetables, Grandpa. Um, and just stop eating all that stuff and you could be a kid again. And of course, if you think about it, that's actually a very rational hypothesis, right? Because if you eat all that stuff, then you grow up to be a big grown-up. So maybe if you stop eating all that stuff, you could go back to being a kid. And that's not just my adorable, cute grandson, that's what four-year-olds do all the time. And that's actually what we study when we do our work. We can give the kids a little bit of data about a system, and they can make causal inferences about that system that, that are more impressive than the greatest scientists that we know. Um, and that kind of capacity is the kind of capacity, that capacity for creative generation of a new idea that nobody's had before. If well, you want human intelligence, that's the thing that we humans can do better be than anyone else. Well, better, maybe the only people that can do that. Only, yeah. uh, I don't know, you, you tell me, is, is the advance into novelty specific to humans that, you know, can, well, can, I, can, yeah. can an AI come up with something that never been thought of before? Well, 
you know, to some extent, they can make new generalizations. They can think up new chess moves. They can figure out a, a, a new way of playing Go. But can, those are still very restricted. Can, wait, um, can, they, have, can they have humor? Um, well, you know, it depends. The trouble is all these things that are most distinctively human are exactly the things that we have we have the hardest time uh, we have the hardest time defining. But here's the thought, actually, I, I'm actually teaching this this book in my class, and we were talking about it today. And here's the thought, which is if you think about something like AIs in the legal system, which is something that people are very worried about now because an AI could actually be making decisions about things like what a sentence should be. The thing about human beings isn't so much that we can take a bunch of data and say this person has broken the law or not. What we can do is we can say, you know, maybe this law isn't the right law. Even though this is the generalization, this is the data that I can see about the way that we've done things for the last thousands ye a thousand years, mm -hmm. and I can set up an objective function and say, I'm going to get an AI to do the same thing we've been doing. The mm -hmm. amazing thing that people can do is they can say, but maybe that's completely wrong. Maybe that's in science, we can say maybe that's completely the wrong way about, of thinking about the world. In ethics, we can say maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about how we should have humans thriving. It, the, the great Huck Finn example about, well, I'll go to hell because I'm violating the, the conventions of the mm. people around me because I, I, uh, I, help, uh, I help Jim to be, to be free. Mm. That, that seems to me to be really the essence of what human beings can do, this kind of constant bootstrapping and revising and taking the place that we are now and in conjunction with other people, having conversations that let us get to some place that's new. And, you know, I do think the brain is a computer. Presumably, we do know about physical systems that can do this. In fact, we can actually create physical systems that can do this kind of really sophisticated learning. Um, and it's much more fun than programming because these are actually the four-year-olds who are around us. And we have really good techniques for creating them. Um, uh, so we can do this, but we don't... Un so that those are real physical systems that are out there in the world. At some point, we're going to understand them. But I think the key is going to be this capacity for novelty, this capacity to bring things into the world or make worlds that were, that were totally different from the worlds that were there before. Um, and can you give an, an example or two of, in your work, how you see cognitive science connecting to yeah. AI experiments? And so there's been this tension that's been there in, not just in cognitive science, but in philosophy, going back to Plato and Aristotle, between two different ways of solving this great problem of knowledge. How is it that from those little photons and, and disturbances we can figure out how the world works? And one idea has always been, if we just have enough data, if we just take the data and we put it together in complicated enough ways, we're going to solve the problem. And that's kind of been the deep learning approach. Another approach has been to say, let's think about what would happen if we had abstract representations of the world to begin with, if we knew something about the world and we understood the world in a pretty abstract sophisticated kind of way, and then we revised those abstract representations ra rather than trying to, to just start from scratch, just from nothing but the 
evidence at our eyes and ears. And that's that the, we've sort of ping-ponged back and forth in the history of AI between those two approaches. Indeed, in the history of philosophy, which is my, you know, my other day job, we've ping-ponged back and forth between those two approaches. And I think we're starting to have some of the tools to have systems that genuinely do both of those things, that can go back and forth from very abstract, structured representations of the world. And those are the things that let us make brand new predictions to the actual data that we get from the world. And there are things like probabilistic um, generative models that we've been using, ways of trying to search those spaces that can help to represent the kinds of things that we think that children are doing. Um, causal inference is something that children do constantly, pretty much from the time they're born. And that's something that's different from just statistical, uh, from just pulling out statistics. That and that's something that, uh, that computers are going to have to do if they're, if they're going to have something like human intelligence. Is that connected to Judea Pearl's Exactly, work? that's right. So for 20 years, we've been using causal, causal graphical models. Judea Pearl talks about them in the, in the book. We've been using that kind of formalism to try of, to... The book of why. Yeah, to try to understand, to try to understand what's going on with, uh, with even very young children. So I think right. that piece, being able to understand the causal structure of the world, is going to play a big role. Right. Another thing that I think is going to play a, a, a big role uh, is um, the very fact of childhood. So one of the most distinctive things about us as human beings, and this is true about big-brained animals in general, is that we have this very long, helpless, useless period of childhood when we're making lots of new connections. And then we have this kind of tipping point where we become adults. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is thinking about a lot of things that we might think of as bugs of childhood, like noisiness and randomness and craziness and weirdness, and actually thinking that those might be the features that in combination with the things we can do as adults, being controlled and goal-directed, that, that that kind of secret, starting out one way and then with one kind of intelligence and then having another kind of intelligence, that might be the secret. So rather than thinking about general artificial intelligence, which is always the thing that people think about, we might want to think about lots of different intelligences, multiple intelligences, including... Like the, possible minds. Yeah, including the intelligence of kids. Thank you. Thank you. Alice Agapik. Stuart Russell is next. Berkeley professor. If you've ever taken a computer science class, you've used his textbook, which has sold five million copies, a few of which have been paid for. So, <laughs> um, Stuart is my default person for asking serious questions about computation. He's a um, recognized authority um, in, in the general field and has done important work in bounded rationality and also AI risk and, and kind of beneficial, what would you call it? Uh, so beneficial AI. Beneficial yeah. AI. Um, or should value, say provably value beneficial AI. alignment. Yeah. So he's one of the good guys. <laughs> yeah, so um, I started worrying about this actually uh, a long time ago. Um, 
because my, uh, my parents lived in Birmingham and um, they sold their house to David Lodge, uh, who's an author who writes um, sort of uh, academic romances and, and things like that. And um, so, um, so David gave us a couple of his books uh, and I read uh, Changing Places and Small World. And um, so in, in the story, there's a graduate student who, um, uh, who goes to the big uh, literary theory conference uh, and there's a panel of uh, the gods of his field uh, up there and he asks the question, he says basically, you know, what if you were right? And this causes absolute consternation uh, because you know, if you know anything about literary theory, the idea that it could be right or wrong uh, is just sort of missing the point completely. Uh, it's all about destroying the other person's uh, reputation and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so on. So anyway, um, and, and I thought I should read this because the other, the other part of the book is about uh, I, uh, academics who move from a fictional version of Birmingham to a fictional version of Berkeley. Uh, and since I was moving from the real Birmingham to the real Berkeley, it was like, this is a funny sort of coincidence. And, and this made me pay attention to that question. And I was thinking, what if you asked people in AI? What if you were right? What if you actually succeeded uh, in the goals that you have set for the field? Um, and it seemed to me that almost no one was asking that question. And certainly nobody had an answer. Um, and over the, that was in the early 90s. And over the next. Uh, 20 years or so, um, I started to think about what kinds of answers you might have. And it became, I would say, a little bit more urgent um, for me when I saw Big Dog, which is the Boston Dynamics, the four-legged robot, um, which you see in that video where the, one of their engineers tries to push it over, uh, basically kicks this robot, tries to push it to the ground with his foot. Um, so he's probably the first to go. Um, <laughs> And uh, you know, and I, and I, and it, it, it actually, you know, it sort of recoils and stumbles and, and gets back on its feet again in such a lifelike way. And I had worked on leg locomotion in the 90s, and it's a hard problem. And uh, you look at that video and you think, okay, that problem is basically solved. You know, what if we solve some of the other problems, like the problems that Allison was talking about? Um, the problems of uh, dexterous manipulation for robots, which is another big open problem in the field. Um, the problem of understanding language. What if we actually nail these problems? And, and to some extent, uh, we've now largely nailed the problem of speech recognition. Uh, and in some ways, although in very fragile and peculiar ways, we've solved the problem of recognition of objects uh, in visual images. Uh, and if you've ever used Google Translate these days, machine translation seems to work incredibly well. So we're starting to nail some of these problems. And uh, so this has made me think harder. Um, and here's the problem that I see. Uh, we have what you might call the standard model. So physics has its standard model, and AI has a standard model. And it's the same standard model that control theory has, that cybernetics has. Uh, that statistics has, that economics has, e operations research. It's the same model. You create optimizing machinery for which you specify an objective. 
And then you hope that you got the objective right. And um, so interestingly, uh, so John was talking about the book by Norbert Wiener, Human Use of Human Beings. Um, and in that book, he says, uh, the purpose that we put into the machine has to be the purpose that we really desire. Otherwise, we are toast, right? And um, so that's the standard model. This is how we do things. So this is you know, a big chunk of 20th century technology is based on that model. And um, Wiener also said that it's only human impotence that has protected us from human folly. Um, by which he meant that our machines are so stupid and, and uh, they, they have impacts on such a small scale that if you put the wrong purpose in, up to now you've been able to switch them off, reset, uh, you know, hit yourself on the head and say, okay, obviously I forgot, uh, you know, I forgot about this, I forgot about that. So the question is, when machines are more intelligent than human beings, we may not have that choice. And uh, and even before that, so we talked about social media. So Rod was, was saying that we are sort of at the mercy of social media. And, you know, and the filter bubble is something that people talk about, right? It's a, um, it's a phenomenon, and the, the, the word filter bubble is very much looking at it from the point of view of the human being who's, who's in it uh, and how it affects your opinions over time. But look at this from the point of view of the machine. Right? What is the purpose put into the machine? The purpose is maximize click-through. Right? Feed people stuff that they're going to click on, because that's how we make money. Right? And you might say, well, how do you maximize click-through? You just uh, send people stuff that they like clicking on, right? Simple as that. Actually, that's not what the algorithms are doing. That's probably what Facebook and Google and so on thought that the algorithms were going to do that the algorithms would adjust to the people's preferences. But in fact, that's not how reinforcement learning works. Reinforcement learning changes the state of the world to maximize the reward. And the state of the world in this case is your brain. So what does it do? It changes you in a way that makes you more predictable so that it can then send you stuff that it knows you're going to click on. And who is more predictable than a raving fascist or a raving communist, right? So the algorithms simply operate in a straightforward way to push, you know, so whichever, whichever side of the spectrum you're on, it's going to push you to the extreme by feeding you algorithms that are a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right of where you currently are. And it does that very efficiently. Uh, and creates raving fascists and raving communists who will then lap up all of the raving content that, that, uh, that the world can produce. And there's, there's a whole industry you know, that has grown up simply to feed that process. Um, so that simple algorithm is not very smart. It's a reinforcement learning algorithm um, has possibly destroyed the EU, uh, <laughs> NATO, uh, Western democracy, um, and that's just 50 lines of code, right? Imagine, <laughs> you know, imagine if it was, if it was a, a really intelligent system operating. Um, so, this is, so this is the problem that we face. And the question is, you know, what do we do about that? And we just say, get rid of the standard model. 
right? The standard model where the machine operates with a fixed objective provided by humans. Um, and a different model is to have machines whose purpose is to make life better for humans, but doesn't know what that means. In other words, they are explicitly un uncertain of what the true objective is. And when you change the model to that, right, you create a kind of a coupling between machines and humans. The machines remain dependent on humans because it's the humans who have the objective. Right? The machines would like to know what it is, but we're not telling them. Do, do you think... Right? Uh, <laughs> and that's a, and that, that creates them, they become subservient, necessarily subservient. They necessarily ask permission. They necessarily allow themselves to be switched off because they want to avoid doing things that we don't like, uh, and so on. So you change the relationship completely. Will we get AI that um, doesn't know what it doesn't know? Uh, that, so that would be a mistake, right? We, we need the AI systems to know that they don't know. And I misphrased it. Uh, yeah, so... Is um, that possible? Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's entirely possible. Is it possible to get an AI with humility? In the sense that, uh, yes. An AI the, that yeah. uh, Catherine Bateson points out, wouldn't it be great if an AI system uh, was presented with a problem and said, I'll sleep on it. At, at the very least. So, um, the, uh, yeah, so the kind of humility we're talking about um, came into AI sometime around 1980, actually. There was a, there was a, a single issue of the AI journal um, where all of the logical AI people who up to that point had assumed that AI systems could have perfect, correct, knowledge of the world, basically fessed up and said, okay, not really, uh, we can't do that, we have to have some form of uncertainty. Uh, and they came up with all kinds of weird stuff, uh, anything to avoid probability. And, uh, and Yuda Pearl said, no, no, probability is fine, and here's all the machinery to let machines be uncertain about the world, uh, and it works great, and that was the beginning of modern AI. But despite that, despite the admission that uncertainty is pervasive in everything we know about the world, uh, we persisted with the idea that there would still be perfect certainty about the objective. Uh, and I can't really explain why that was, other than that it's the standard model. You know, it's kind of like in biology, the central dogma, uh, and you just don't question it. Uh, so and that was a big mistake. religious to some degree? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. So in this part of the conversation, I'm going to ask a few questions. And again, there are people with cards around. If you have a question for anybody up here, um, we'll start with, with that. So um, the idea is we have possible ideas about possible minds. I'm wondering if there's any statement about artificial intelligence that the three of you would agree on. What would you think that might be? What could you say about AI, either today or in the future? Maybe we should praise the best idea of the others. <laughs> say it again? Maybe we can you know, 
you know, maybe I can say yeah. Stuart's best idea or something okay, like that. Okay, yeah. So what's Stuart's <laughs> best idea? Oh, damn. <laughs> and then I can't disagree with it. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I think Stuart, I think Stuart is onto something about how we, how the, how the standard model we get stuck with, and we got, got stuck with it for a long time, and, and. Um, so that, that idea that we keep, have to keep revisiting what the standard model is. We'll, we've got a new standard model, and well, there's a, a few stu new standard models, but I think that's a good idea that we keep revisiting that. And Elton, would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, I think, there's, I think there's an issue. So here's something that I think we would all agree about. We would all agree that, at the, that AI is extremely powerful and smart and extremely stupid and very far from being smart at the same time. So I think, I think all, all of us would agree that both of those things are yeah. true, that it's much more powerful and more intelligent than we might ever have thought, and it's also much stupider and much less intelligent than we might ever have thought. So that, I think that's a contradiction that, um, mm. a Whitman, a Walt Whitman type contradiction <laughs> that we can all... Uh, it might, uh, might, might apply well, to some of the people in it too. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> But I think there's something interesting about what Rod was saying about what Stuart was saying, which is this question about how it is that we design objective functions doesn't just apply to our understanding of artificial intelligences. Of course, it applies to us, too. So that was the point that I was, the Huck Finn point that I was making, which is one of the most curious, interesting things about human intelligence is that we're capable of changing our minds about what our objective functions are. Yes, um, so and, so, and machines are capable of changing our minds about what our objectives are. Right. And, and that's part of the problem, right? So, you know, one of the, uh, one of the failure modes is if you, if you have a machine who's which is designed to solve human problems, to uh, satisfy human objectives, the easiest way to do that is to change the human objectives so that they're easier to right. satisfy, right. right? And so you have to, you know, make sure that that isn't a bug in your... Uh, in your design, because I think this is actually one of the things they're doing right now. And advertisers have been doing this for, for yeah, de I mean, decades and decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess nothing where I would slightly disagree with yeah. you is, yeah. I think <clears throat> when people hear you speak, they often think you're saying, and you might even believe this, I'm not sure, um, they often think you're saying that the uh, AI system is doing it volitionally, but some of the things you were talking about before have, has been done with human assistance within the companies, and it's been very explicitly the goals of the humans to get the attention and to get the click-through. So it hasn't been as automatic as mm -hmm. somehow sometimes people would think from listening to you. It's been much more the, yeah, people so, have been so, in the loop right. of making that happen. The, but the, I mean, the, the goal of click-through, right? So I mean, these are simple banded algorithms and reinforcement learning yeah. algorithms, and sometimes there's a loop that passes through humans where they do A-B testing and other kinds of things, but, but basically it's the machine that's measuring click-through, uh, and for each piece of content and each person is trying to estimate the probability that they're going to click on that, uh, and then continually up updating their estimates and so on. So, so there is a, a completely automated feedback loop uh, whose objective is maximization of click-through. But you know, we set it up, of course. But, but you, but. as you said, that's like 50 lines of code. So, so the picture is somehow, and I think this picture is rooted in much older anxieties. Is that it's because they're so intelligent that they're going to be scary, like the golem, right, or like Frankenstein, uh, like Frankenstein's monster. Whereas it's actually, in some ways, 
you know, perfectly simple, not terribly sophisticated in intelligent systems that, that can do just as much damage, if not more damage. So, so Rod, is there, um, what, what's the number one thing that you think is misunderstood about AI by the public, and what is the number one thing that's misunderstood by AI by the experts? Okay, I can do the first one uh, fairly okay, easily. Right. <clears throat> I think that um, this was from my essay, The Seven Deadly Sins of Predicting the Future of AI. I think if we hear about a person with a certain level, level of performance, we understand how to generalize that performance to what sort of competence they have. Mm -hmm. So when um, I uh, hear you speaking Chinese, I think, well, then a Chinese person could probably come up to Kevin and say, uh, talk about the weather in Chinese, if he can speak Chinese at all. Whereas the image labeling systems that say it's a, uh, um, a, a snow plow on a snowy day don't know that weather exists. Mm -hmm. So the, the image labeling system has a performance, but the competence generalization around that is nothing like what we could apply to a human. Mm -hmm. The second part of the question was, what's, what, what's one thing that is misunderstood, that you, in your opinion, by most of the experts? Oh, 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 that they think they have the right metaphors okay. to make progress. <laughs> They're completely wrong. So, Allison, what would you say to the same questions? What's, what's the number one thing that you think um, is misunderstood by the public in terms of uh, understanding AI? And then what's the number one thing that you think the experts misunderstand? Well, this is something that I think actually applies to both public and the experts, which is the extent to which what AIs are doing is actually sort of crowdsourcing human intelligence as opposed to generating intelligence of their own. Mm -hmm. So if you take the translation example, uh, which, which Stuart was mentioning and lots of people use as an example, Really what's happening is that there are you know, millions of human beings doing translations on the net, and what the uh, AI is doing is just trying to find regularities in the translations. But they, those things would be completely impossible if they weren't really uh, amalgamating all of the decisions of a whole lot of human intelligences. Um, and the same thing's true about image recognition. So it's important that those images are things that people have already decided that this is a good image of a cat and that it should be called a cat and put it on uh, before, they, before they put it on the web. So in, you could argue that what's really happened is not so much about the artificial intelligence the, that's going to come and, come and get us as what happens when you aggregate you know, millions and millions of human intelligences, and then you have some really important algorithms and so forth that can take advantage of that aggregation. And that's a really different way of looking at it than thinking there's these other, there's these aliens out here that have a different kind of intelligence, okay. for good or ill. Stuart. Uh, I think what you see over and over again in the media and uh, movies about AI is that everything is completely fine as long as they don't become conscious. <laughs> right, because of course, when they become conscious, they will naturally hate us and want to kill us all. <laughs> so as long as, and, and then they usually go on to say, and of course, AI researchers have, you know, know nothing whatsoever about consciousness, and so we don't have anything to worry about. Neither do a lot well, of psychologists. So, so let, let's put it this way, right? Uh, yeah, no one knows anything about consciousness. Um, so if, if, if I gave you this piece of software, you know, maybe in 20 years' time, uh, and you, you read through all the code, you, know, you understand the programming language, you know what kind of machine it's going to run on, 
And I say, you know, is, is this going to take over the world? And you read through it, and, and you say, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, when you run this code, I can see what's going to happen. It's going to start formulating these plans, and, and it's going to do this and this and this and this and this. Yep. And you say, yeah, okay, it's definitely going to take over the world. Um, and now I say, okay, but um, actually this piece of software uh, also produces a conscious entity. Does that change your prediction? The answer is, of course not. Of course not, because I made my prediction based on C++ code running on you know, the Intel X99 or whatever it is, and um, that prediction doesn't change. It's still the same C++ code, still running on the same machine. The fact that you've told me that it also produces consciousness has absolutely no impact on my prediction that it's going to take over the world. So the taking over the worldliness of AI systems uh, has nothing whatsoever to do with consciousness. And I think that's really important for people to understand because it means it's not science fiction. It doesn't require some sort of completely unphysical breakthrough. It would be like saying, you know, it's, it's only a dangerous missile when it goes faster than the speed of light. Yeah. So since we, don't, since we know that we can't go faster than the speed of light, everything is safe, right? It's just really annoying. <laughs> and I get annoyed, I, I get annoyed Kevin. That, that Stuart uses the term that it's going to take over the world instead of it's going to cause mayhem, which is very different from taking over the world. Mm -hmm. okay. I think uh, one of the things that people get wrong today, to quote Stuart Brand, if I may, um, all, all contemporary discussion is bound to age badly and immediately without the longer perspective. Um, long now, obviously. But there's something to that where so much of the conversation today is, is this digital narrative coming out of five companies and the people that work there and, and the so-called technical tech press, you know, which, which is, is pretty much uh, not a normal press situation. You know, everybody's on the same page. They're all on the com. They're all in it together. And I think that's a huge issue. Yeah, it's, um, I think this goes back to the metaphors we have. We have a shortage of metaphors, of framings for this. And part of, I think, what we're trying to do is to see what alternative metaphors there might be. Mm -hmm. So um, I think people who work with kids, you don't normally think in computational metaphors, although you could, but you probably don't. No, we always think in terms of computational metaphors. Really? Yeah. I mean, we it's, have been it's for... destroyed science. Well, so, so this is... And that's how we've made progress. So, you know, for the past 40 years... So this, this would be the argument that I, I have with Rodney for the past 40 years. And rather surprisingly, in a way, it turns out that this computational, uh, this computational model for a lot of really complicated kinds of human capacities, including the kinds of complicated capacities that we see in even very young children, just turns out to be scientifically extremely productive and effective model. And that's, you know, that's what we want in science. It's not like there was some a priori reason that we knew that it was going to turn out to be computation. And there are lots of reasons why you might think, really, you know, like two-year-olds are constructing causal graphical probable models and then looking at conditional probabilities and mapping them all, like that doesn't seem very likely. But it's sure enough, if you want to predict the behavior of two-year-olds, that turns out to be the best way 
that you could think of doing it. Better than everyday, better than your sort of everyday psychology, certainly better than any biological, simple biological or neurological account. And that's true across all of cognitive science. Now, maybe it's not the end. Our scientific models often run out of steam at some point. But I think the remarkable thing is that it's been as effective and, and as powerful an explanatory device as, uh, as powerful an explanatory device as it has been. Yeah, I mean, if there was a, if cognitive scientists had a better predictive model, you can bet the AI people would be using it to make, to <laughs> yeah, make better yeah. AI systems. Um, and there has been some, I would say, interplay, but when you look at the revival of, of the whole Bayesian theory of cognition, yeah. uh, it's really arisen because uh, we were able to produce models that were much, much richer than, for example, some of the simple... Uh, psychological models of the behaviorists and so on, uh, and able to explain uh, really quite creative behaviors. You know, the ability to to look at a new alphabet and recognize a letter from one example, uh, and then re-recognize it when it's you know stitched on a quilt. Um, that kind of thing can be done uh, with these sorts of models. I so, think there's there's also something interesting to say about Turing, which is that you know that model starts out by thinking about what someone's doing inside of their head when they're doing, in particular, what a woman is doing, right, what a woman is doing when she's sitting there doing the computations that, that won World War, World War II. And it's, well, the interesting thought is, is the thing that you do when you're sitting there and working out a computation, could you actually use that to build a physical system? That's the great insight. And then it turns out, not only can you do that, but you can do it to explain things that don't feel like calculation at all, like uh, a two-year-old figuring out um, how, what, what her, her mom is thinking. I mean, you can use it for things that look very different. So it goes back and forth between the physical and the psychological. Uh, y y y yes, but it's actually, it's actually a little more subtle than that even. Turing wanted to show that this process that women computers were doing on pencil and paper was all there was so that he could get a contradiction in one of Hilbert's later yeah. problems. He wanted to say, that's all there is, because then I can disprove this thing. Um, so it's, but, but that it is a model of people doing physical things becoming computational and then that becoming the physical instantiation in the children. It's a weird loop. And I suspect we don't have it right. If we went on the long-term view of the world of science, I suspect we'll come with something different before, before the clock strikes 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, a, I have a question from our audience, from John Gilmore. He says, educating humans into self-direction takes 20 years. Is a team trying now to teach an AI system to become self-directed 20 years from now? To your point about the phase of childhood thinking, which may be necessary, do we imagine that there is a time element in intelligence that, that, that maybe you need to have many, many years to grow intelligence rather than to install them or to download them? Is, is, there, is, is, is that a necessary element of intelligence that there's a time dimension? Well, I think one of the things that's been really interesting about what's happened with, with things like uh, deep learning or, or deep RL is that 
the amount of data, so the, the limit, there's a limitation about time, but there's also a limitation about data. And one of the interesting things is that you can get much more data, much many more rounds of evidence in a shorter period of time than we could, than we could do before. So, you know, uh, uh, AlphaZero is playing millions and millions of chess games in the space of weeks, maybe even hours, the hours, hours. right? 80, 80 million uh, games per hour, I think, uh, something like that. Yeah. And obviously, we're not doing, we're not getting data at anything like that rate. So the fact, it is true that the just speeding up the amount of, speeding up the rate at which we can get data is, has been relevant to those advances. Yeah, but this gets back to your point about um, children with one or two examples or three right. examples. Yeah. Because these learning processes, if you look at the actual amount of energy they use. Yeah. It's an incredible amount of energy compared to what a child uses to learn. But you're talking about calorie energy. Yeah, the actual energy, you know, the, 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 the carbon footprint of these learning algorithms yeah. is significant. But then we've got this thing that once you've learned it, you can duplicate it at almost no cost, which isn't the case with, with, with humans. But I think, um, you know, we, not only children, but adults, of course, learned from a very small number of examples. Uh, back in November, I taught um, Stuart and a large audience to recognize uh, steampunk with only six examples. <laughs> <laughs> even even yes. Stuart got it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, actually, this, this was the topic of my thesis research, was how do we generalize from one example or two examples? And, um, you know, I, it's, it's clear to me that the deep learning community is seeing the writing on the wall. Just as you know, in the 60s, the AI community got very excited that they could come up with three-step plans or four-step plans, yeah. and they thought, oh, well, you know, we'll just have bigger computers and then we can do million-step plans. But of course, it, there was exponential complexity in those planning problems, and they could get up to like six, uh, and then they ran out of steam completely. And you can't have an exponential amount of data, right? There's no good saying, well, I have a learning algorithm, and I just need more data than there is in the entire universe mm -hmm. uh, to train it. That, that, then, then I'll be, have a really smart machine. And, and it, it just doesn't make sense, right? Um, you know, when you, when you look at something like the detector that, um, the LIGO detector that detected the collision of two black holes, you know, two-thirds of the way across the universe, um, that's not built by you know, training something from, you know, quintillions of other examples of black holes colliding to the, you yeah. know, two-thirds of the way. They had never seen any one of those before. And um, it, it is built on the basis of human experience, right, of, of scientists going back thousands of years. But that human experience was clearly communicated through written knowledge because all those people are dead, mm -hmm. right? So... Um, so you simply can't explain that kind of event by saying, oh, we just, we just get more big data uh, and we train our machines from it. It just doesn't make sense at all. It'd be like, you know, another, another problem might be I want my machine to, to design the next gigafactory, you know, the one that they're building in China, right? Well, where are the four billion other gigafactories that you're going to use as training examples for that problem. So now you've got also, something we all agree on. Right, so we all agree <laughs> on this. Where's, right? where's the electricity? And, 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 and so the, here's a quote from Demis Hassabis, who's CEO of DeepMind, right? He's the, the brain behind AlphaGo and a lot of other deep learning successes. He says, you know, we clearly have to, uh, to start working on, on machines that use symbols and logic and math uh, and all that kind of thing. 
right, which AI people worked on uh, back in the 80s. So the pendulum is swinging uh, and, back you know, in the you, other if direction. You, if you think about the example, the other, I mean, it's, in a sense, it's an even worse problem because what happens is once you've learned from those millions of examples, you don't get very much benefit for the next million examples. So if you take the example about chess, this thing that we've all thought was, in, was a, a tremendous sign of intelligence, even though those systems can learn from chess, if you went to the machine and you said, OK, now we're going to make all the rooks go backwards, and all of the bishops are going to be able to hop over the knights four times, I want you to play that game, even a seven-year-old would be able to say, oh, yeah, OK, I, I've got my chess skills. I can, apply it to, I can apply it to that game. They wouldn't have to do another million uh, examples to be able to, to come back and learn it. And of course, another, an, uh, another uh, piece is that my three-year-old uh, grandson, who can't play chess, can knock all the pieces off the board. That's his idea of how you play chess, <laughs> is knock all the pieces off the board and then pick them up and put them back, which again is something that uh, computers aren't even in the ballpark of being right. able to do. So, so, so it seems as if something we can, something the three of you uh, agree on is, is the fact of the kind of the, maybe the limit of this um, big data neural net approach that that's limited in, in, in uh, some, some capacity. What is something that none of the three of you agree on? What, what, do, what do you fundamentally disagree about the most? <laughs> so, like, uh, do, do I want to start throwing out some things sure. and, and see if uh, um, that um, uh, that there is? Uh, let's see. How, how about the statement that um, uh, AI can be smarter than humans? How about the, the statement that people make that um, uh, we need to regulate AI right now ah. or that we shouldn't uh, weaponize AI? Um, I'm, just, I'm just throwing some statements out just to see if <laughs> I we think can get... We all agree, I think we all agree that we shouldn't be weaponizing AI. No, I don't agree. You don't agree? Okay. No, I think that's a, that's a certain lo level of... Um, of uh, privileged uh, arrogance, actually. Um, you know, I, I had 6,500 robots in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, uh, dealing with roadside bombs. They weren't weaponized. But um, uh -huh. the locals, we would see a new technology arise to defeat the robots in one place. Within three weeks, it would spread across the country. And it was using technology that I said at the time, it was, uh, it was a mixture of... Um, Radio Shack and Home Depot technology. Mm. That was before open courseware and before um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Coursera and, and these other companies. I think when people say, we the AI practitioners must decide that it's going to go this way, there's an arrogance that there is some privileged people that are sitting at Berkeley and, and uh, Stanford and, and MIT, whereas the world is full of really smart people and we have democratized knowledge and saying that hmm. we, we control the knowledge, I think, is, is very yeah. misguided. Well, I, don't, I don't think we control the knowledge at all, but you know, the, the knowledge of how to make chemical weapons is not controlled. Everyone knows how to do that, but nonetheless, we have regulation 
to ban it, and I'm glad we do. Uh, yeah. um, so, so there's, so, there's, there's, there's regulations on the delivery systems, but um, I think, I think it, you, you have to be careful what you're regulating, especially if you're going to say we're going to regulate AI, and we're going to regulate AI, AI research, which some of uh, your friends have said, um, well, <laughs> no, actually, Toby I mean, has said. Um, uh, the, 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 my question is, well, what do you want to change right now? What behavior of what person do you want to change? What do you want to say that uh, uh, Stuart is allowed to do in his, in his office that has to change if you want to regulate it? I think you want to regulate outcomes, but not do methods. You, you do, yeah, you don't want AI systems that can decide to kill humans. Mm -hmm. And I think well, that's you know, that, that, even there. I, I will say that it's, no, no, it's actually not common sense, um, and this is not going to be a popular <laughs> position. But um, I, th I, I have thought about this a lot. Um, there's, a, there's an understanding, or there's a, a, an expectation that because a machine is involved in a decision, things are worse. But what we did as a country, United States, put young kids just out of high school in villages at night in very dangerous situations, what is their option? Their option is to protect themselves. They're scared beyond belief. A robot can afford to shoot second. A mm. person, we don't expect our 18-year-olds to, to do that. Yeah, so it as we can use... It can change the dynamics. Um, I put many robots out uh, going into uh, hostage situations where the robots go out there and it changes the dynamics. It's not this simple-minded idea. Robots making decisions, robots in a feedback loop are bad. We have our machines making decisions all the time. We have our machines deciding when to put our brakes on with automatic braking systems. When they first came out said, oh, we can't allow the, we can't allow the, 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 the uh, uh, car to decide when to brake or not, but it's much better than a human being in that loop. So the but fact the, that the, it's, the, therefore, as, if it's a machine, Allison, it's bad, is a naive thing to say, I Stuart. Uh, but I didn't say that. So, Francesca, okay, right? you, you want us to argue. <laughs> we got there, okay? Right? So that's, that's, that's a, that's, you're overgeneralizing from what I'm saying. Just because there are possible good uses uh, of lethal autonomous weapons doesn't mean that it's a good idea to have them proliferate across the whole world no, in the hope not, that not everyone will only use them for those good things. But by right? the way, by the way, they're out, autonomous lethal weapons are out there everywhere already. Um, and it's not from the elites deciding to build them. It's from ordinary people around the world deciding to build them. Uh, so that's no, the ones, that, the ones they're building are remotely piloted and not... Oh, no, no, uh, no, that, 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 that was not true in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were not necessarily remotely operated at all. They were automatic systems. They were there. Uh, well, here's, here's something that we might disagree about, but that's relevant <laughs> to this, which is how much is this discontinuous with other technologies and both, you know, technologies in the fancy machine sense, but also sort of social technologies like our abilities to read or communicate. How much, how much is what's happened with AI really discontinuous with that, or how much is it continuous with the fact that we've always had to regulate? Uh, you know, we regulate dishwashers and Cuisinarts, and uh, until we regulated electricity, it killed lots of people. I mean, there's, there's a sense... So, so this is a, a question, is how much of this is really something that's 
completely different from everything that we've had done before, and how much is, is it a matter of regulating our own understanding? So social media, I, this is an example that cuts both ways when you talk about social media. There's a wonderful book called The, uh, the Literary Underground and the Ancien Regime, and there's very clear evidence that when printing really became became easy and efficient, it totally changed the way that people communicated in exactly, with exactly the kind of reinforcement algorithms that you're talking about. So there was this sudden proliferation of political scandal and pornography. And it was, you know, the only bad outcome was the French Revolution. But aside from that, um, aside from that, it was kind of okay in the long run, in the long run. And we the American out, Revolution. Uh, yeah, worse, and, yeah, right. I mean, the French Revolution and the American Revolution, well, you know, kind of trade-off. And in the long run, everything was okay. So, I, you know, I really do wonder how much how yeah. much you think and, that's... And we, right, and we pass libel laws because exactly. you can... That's you right. know, if, if, if you And I think the scalability is the important <laughs> thing, right? And, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies have this property of scalability, right? Once they formulate a new drug, they can, they can make it by the billions of pills. Um, and if it turns out, you know, two years later that everyone who took one of those pills is going to die, um, that would be really bad. And so we actually have many, many stages yeah. of control to prevent that from happening, because it did happen. Right? There, were, there were episodes of hundreds of thousands of people dying or being paralyzed from misformulated products. Um, and uh, you know, now with social media, right, we also have a sort of scalable weapon of social destruction. And uh, you know, there's nothing between you know, four undergrads chugging Red Bull and the world population. Right? Uh, there's no layers of control. There's no, there's no stage one trial, stage two trial, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say Silicon Valley thinks that's great. Um, but at some point, the rest of the world is going to say, this is not great. No, and I, I agree with you on this. I, I, think, I think that the, and this sort of gets to your point, the, 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 the labeling that AI per se is, is, is vastly mm -hmm. different is, is, I think, misguided. And it's a different level of control that we need. I mean, I think there is a kind of mythology that, uh, and again, this goes back to the golem, right? Is that things that are kind of like human beings that are, it, it's interesting, for instance, that have you noticed that we've stopped saying AI and we've started saying Anna AI or the you, AI? You, you have, right? I haven't. Um, that's what's <laughs> happening. Uh, um, it annoys me when people does. say that. Well, I completely, no, I completely agree with you, but I think it's symptomatic because there of is this. No, there is no Anna AI. There are, there, are no there are no examples of it in existence. Um, it's a, it's so a I, misnomer. I do think there's, there's an overlay of something that's always been true about human beings, which is that this very capacity that we have to reshape our objectives and reshape the way that we think about the world has this oh, is always a is always a, a double-edged sword. Yeah, and when we when we when we see, as you said, I think the words you used were when we see that something is sort of like us but not exactly us, then we become afraid of it. It's sort of like immigrants, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they, I mean, they will all want to kill us because <laughs> uh, as immigrants, uh, Australians. Yes, as, <laughs> or Birminghamers. Yes. <laughs> But, but I think that's that general symptom. So, so, right, but uh, if you're a gorilla, right, you, you, know, you could say, oh, these humans, yeah, they're sort of like us, but you know, that, that's just, a, you know, we're just treating, like, treating them like you know, those lowland gorillas, those immigrant lowland gorillas. You know, and it was, was wrong of us to discriminate against the lowland gorillas, and, and we should welcome humans with open arms. But the gorillas lost, 
right? These immigrants, the humans, were just smarter, uh, and they destroyed almost all the gorillas, almost all the chimpanzees, almost all the whales, uh, actually, lots and lots of intelligence. almost all mammals, except cows. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So lots and lots of intelligent species got wiped out or almost wiped out because they weren't quite as intelligent as us. So, um, so yes, it's possible, coming back to your earlier question, yes, it's possible to be smarter than a human in the same way that it's possible to be smarter than a chimpanzee or a whale or but a gorilla. I, no, I think that's exactly wrong. I think, I think what's happened is that we're smarter than we were... This is the Flynn effect, right? I mean, the fact that we communicate with one another, the fact that we've invented things like printing has made us much smarter than we were in the past. So it isn't quite like what's happened is that we eliminated all of our agrarian ancestors somehow, right? I mean, we don't think, no, we okay, did. we I have mean, the this. Australian the Australian Aborigines eliminated all of the large mammals in Australia. Uh, long before they had the printing and press. And then the British eliminated Right, and the British eliminated them. So, um, yeah. you know, so, and, but we are capable of producing this technology of, of mass elimination, and the gorillas aren't. Right. Uh, and that matters. So like they have bigger short-term yeah. memories than us. Uh, they can remember more digits of a telephone number than we can, but it didn't help them very much. Right. Uh, so I'd like to, to, to wrap this up with one final question for the three of you individually, which is, Give us a very brief view of the long-term view of AI. So AI in the next, you know, long-term. What do you think? Is, it, is this, is this, is this um, when you look ahead 100 years, 1,000 a, a years, is it, what do you see? Do you see um, increasing, well, just tell me what you see. <laughs> so... So Rod and I actually agree that we are still a long way from anything, yeah. uh, and Alison as well, we all agree that we're a long way from anything resembling human level or what we might call general purpose intelligence, something that could you know, quickly learn any task that a human could put their mind to and, and master it. Um, and we need conceptual breakthroughs. It's definitely not we need bigger machines. I mean, bigger machines mm -hmm. just give you the wrong answer more quickly. Uh, so. Uh, we need these conceptual breakthroughs, and those are very unpredictable. And it could be that they come pretty quickly. I mean, what's happening now is a massive increase in the investment uh, into AI research, a huge influx of incredibly bright uh, young students and, and people from other fields. Um, so I think the rate of progress is accelerating. So I would say I'd be completely shocked if it happened in the next decade, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if it happened within this century. And I think that's the consensus of the vast majority of AI researchers. And the it that happens so in the So the it would be... What is the it? The it would be that we have then machines, um, and they're not going to be like humans, right? It's not like we're going to say, okay, now it's reached the level, uh, you know, IQ 75, IQ 90. Uh, this is a completely ridiculous idea. Right. Uh, as soon as they can read, they'll be able to read everything the human race has ever written uh, and ingest all that knowledge and, uh, and understand it. So they're not going to look like humans in any way, shape, or form. Um, and they, they will be tools beyond your wildest dreams. Right? If they have physical embodiment, uh, you'll be able to say, you know, I need a house. And you have a house. Right? I need 
I need some information about the history of, uh, of some ancient civilization. You know, you have it. Uh, and, you know, one simple way of thinking about it is if we had such machines, you know, forget about the science fiction stuff, they, they, you know, they would invent eternal life and faster than light transportation. Just could, if they brought the standard of living of, of everyone on Earth up to a kind of respectable mm -hmm. Bay Area level, uh, <laughs> that would be, you know, and you calculate the net present value of that, it will come to about $20,000 trillion. Who's going to own the machines? Mm -hmm. right. So there's going to be... Um, Five people. Uh, oh, I know. There's go so if we navigate all these problems, right. if, we, if we figure out how to make sure that despite the fact that these things are more powerful than us, that we have power and they don't forever, if we solve that problem, uh, then you could have a golden age as long as you can figure out what human what the human race is for. Okay. So that's, that, Alice, I think, is going to be the problem Al, that's, of the chase. That's very, very vivid. Thank you for <laughs> taking that time in detail. I know it's really hard to do, and we're reluctant to. So, Allison, do you have a vision of the long-term vision of yeah. AI? So, so the first thing to say is one of the things about being a mother and caring about children is you learn that you should ration your worries, that there's always an <laughs> infinite space of things to worry about, so you should pick your battles when it comes to useless worry. So if you want to worry, I think we could worry about climate change all the time, 24-7, leave nothing around, to leave no space to worry about AI, and we still wouldn't be worrying enough. So that's kind of my maternal, <laughs> that's my maternal advice. Um, but I also think, this is perhaps a bit different from Stuart, that if you look at our history, I think what will happen is that we'll change in all sorts of serious, important ways, and we won't notice it. Because what always happens is that the day before you're born is always Eden, and the things that happen to you in, in your own lifespan are always technology. Um, and the day after your children are born is always Mad Max, right? So we always are in this situation where we think that the things that happen to us are technological innovations, and they're probably going to end up being Mad Max. But then, of course, if we think about the things like the fact that in this room there are right angles everywhere, it's not like we're really sitting there and saying, my God, the right angles, the right angles are taking over everywhere we look. <laughs> everywhere we look, there's right angles, right? Um, that's even though the fact of right angles has made enormous changes in our lives, or the fact that there's print everywhere doesn't strike us as being something that's this weird technology that we're constantly getting distracted because we have to figure out what that R is, right? That's just, <laughs> that's just part of our lives. And I suspect what will happen is we'll change in really deep and profound ways, and we won't notice it because it'll be happening over and across generations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, I, 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 I just want to thank Stuart for giving another example of my seven deadly sins of predicting AI, that any sufficiently advanced technology <laughs> is indistinguishable from magic. And I think, you know, mm. when it's magic, it can be as bad as you want. Um, so I disagree with Stuart. I wrote a book for, <laughs> I wrote a book for, 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 um, um, for, for John um, back in 2002, and it was named by Katinka called Flesh and Machines, where I thought... And I still think, but I had the time scale completely wrong. I thought that we are going to change, and we have changed with our external devices, but I talked there about how we humans will change by ingesting new technology into our, into our bodies. We had cochlear implants already. I thought that that 
process was going to continue somewhat quite a bit faster than it has happened. I didn't foresee CRISPR, and CRISPR mm -hmm. may well change us. So I think we will change ourselves uh, in explicit ways. And so I don't quite see that there's going to be AI and us as separate things, but we will change ourselves as we go forward. And that's the long term that we will see. Well, so I want to thank you all for your presence here, for your contributions. Um, I think we had a vision of possible minds. I want to thank you for bringing your own mind here and um, sharing with us. I want to thank the audience for joining us with this exploration. And with that, we have to conclude. So thank you. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.